The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your illustrious host, the one, the only, Scott Alexander. And right across from me is the one, the only, the best from the Midwest, the writer of hippopotamuses and the tackler of mooses with nooses in cabooses, Tammy, the Sasquatch. Underwood, say, ah, Tam. Hi, everybody. Tackling mooses and writing hippopotamus? That's right. I rode an elephant once, and that was fun. And a dinosaur. (laughs) No. No, I got the t-shirt to prove it. That's true. That's true. You have the t-shirt with you and I on there. I forgot. (laughs) It's a, for those of you that don't know, it's a a cartoon t-shirt that has a Sasquatch on top of a dinosaur riding him. And when I was doing his laundry one time when I was staying here, I go, how did you get a t-shirt of us together? He's like, I don't. I'm like, I'm looking at it. (laughs) But you sent me a picture of my Jesus fucking Christ. No, that's accurate. uh, Very accurate. (laughs) That tracks. That tracks. That definitely tracks. (laughs) So today we're going to do, it's a, you know, a Thursday episode, thought-provoking episode. Ooh, and provoking it's called, my thoughts. Yeah. I feel provoked. And it's Carrie Stainer. And you should get me one too, please. And his name is Carrie Stainer. And I don't have one. And everybody, I mean, those people out there are going to say, hey, that name sounds familiar. And it should. And this is, I mean, I'll get into it here in a little bit. But this case, I believe, is the epitome of thought-provoking. Because a lot of people say that Carrie Steiner's case began in February 1999. Now, to some degree, degree, I agree with that because that's when he committed his first murder. However, I'm also saying that that timeline is off, quite a bit off, because I'm of the opinion that the events that led up to Carrie committing those crimes started decades before 1999 when it came to the majority of the reports and documents that i found um on this case most of them don't even bring up what i'm about ready to talk about and if they did they kind of glaze over it um they don't really give a whole lot of details and it's those details that i find very significant so bear with me because i'm going to take a detour i'm going to you know go back back way back um sorry that's something from our time too and talk about something that happened back in the 70s. and Because I, I think that's where this began. Um, Carrie Anthony Stainer was born on August 13, 1961 in Merced, California. He was the oldest of five children born to Delbert and Kay Stainer. After he was born, the couple had a girl, then another boy before they had two more girls. Now, for the first decade of Carrie's life, he had what he later actually referred to as, I mean, himself referred to as a, quote, normal childhood. Then on December 4th, 1972, he was only 11 years old when the lives of his, everybody in his family changed forever. Um, on that day in 1972 is where I believed everything started. Carrie's younger brother, Stephen who was only seven years old, was walking home from school that afternoon. At some point between the school and the Stainer house, a man named Irvin Edward Murphy approached him. Um, Got to scroll up, sorry. And according to the reports, Murphy had been recruited by another man named Kenneth Parnell, who also happened to be a convicted child rapist. 
Now, Murphy later stated that Parnell convinced him to help, quote, kidnap a young boy so that he could raise him in a religious type deal. Um, carrying out Parnell's orders, Murphy hung out in areas where young children would walk by to and from school. Those who saw him wouldn't have paid much attention because it appeared as if he were just handing out gospel tracts to the children as they walked by. But on December 4th, 1972, when Murphy saw Stephen walking towards him, he approached the boy and said that he was a representative from a local church and he was out looking for donations. Stephen later said that Murphy walked up to him and asked if, quote, his mother would be willing to donate any items for the church. Minute, was it a Catholic church? Because we it know does, the Catholics. No, it just says religion. And they were handing out tracts. Catholics don't usually hand out tracts. Oh. Those are usually the uh, Pentecostals. And they prefer just to abduct their children right from the. And stuff like that. What? They just prefer to abduct their children right from the church itself. No, I, I, I dig. <laughs> no, from I'm school, on, on the way to school. Yeah, that's right. They're like, yeah, there's a little boy. Let's, yeah. let's get him. Whatever. So Stephen knew that his mother was always willing to help out those in need, which I understand because my mom used to be. I mean, my mom still does. So he told Murphy that she would be willing to donate some items. And that's when the older man asked him where he lived and if he'd be willing to take him to speak to his mother. Stephen agreed and Parnell pulled up driving a white Buick and Stephen jumped in the car thinking they were going to go back to his house. So it was only and we have to remember this is in the 1970s. That was not unheard of back then. We did not have the stranger danger talks until like the 80s. I jump into the car now. Scott, is they... all they have to do is say, puppy. Yeah, pretty much. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the back of that van. Like, uh, okay, sketchy dude who seems like you might actually be homeless and a murderer. You yeah, have a puppy. I'm there. totally, totally gotten William Bonham's van if he had a dog. Oh, totally. Like, seriously. <laughs> William Bonham could have raped me and murdered me, and I'd be, but I petted a puppy. That's so, right. But he's got a puppy. He's got a puppy, so I'm willing to take that risk. Right. It was only a short time after he got in the vehicle that he became confused. He suddenly realized that they weren't going to his house. Instead, Parnell drove him to Kathy's Valley, where he was living in a cabin. In an ironic twist to this whole case, the location of that cabin where Parnell took Stephen was within several hundred feet from where his grandpa lived. And he didn't know it. Right? Gee, many Christmas. Yeah. And so... um, I'm going to get into the, I get into it more. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of glaze over part of it, but, um, long story short, and I'll put it in the blog, but long story short that, um, oh no, I'll get into it here that, um, he was there for quite a while. You know, this guy raised him as his own child. They moved around frequently. It got to a point where he started thinking that he was this guy's child or this guy adopted him because the guy kept saying, your mom and dad couldn't afford you anymore. Oh, wow. So they told me to take care of you, basically type thing, right? Well, you know what? When you have 15 goddamn kids, I I was making a new pot of coffee and I heard you. They had like... They five, had five. Girls, and then they had like three boys and they had 15 more girls and then they had a they gerbil. had a boy a girl a boy and two girls don't they know how that shit happens well you know i would say the off. pregnancy is the fastest spreading sexually transmitted disease out there no freaking crotch goblins <laughs> so but i dig but i digress right <laughs> so as with typical pedophiles when steven started entering puberty he was no longer appealing to parnell you know and we talked about this mm-hmm. and 
you know, he wasn't no longer appealing to Parnell and his perversions. Therefore, the older man set out to find a younger victim. However, in order to do that, on several occasions, he actually forced Stephen to help him abduct another boy. Jiminy Christ, However, what a dick. those attempts failed. With each unsuccessful attempt, Parnell began to have doubts that C- Stephen was even valued to him anymore. Later, Stephen actually said that he purposely sabotaged those efforts to capture another victim because he didn't want somebody else to go through what he had been through. Understandable. Right. However, Parnell didn't let Stephen's lack of success stop him from getting what he wanted. On, Feptem- se- I'm sorry, on February 14, 1980, which is like Aww. almost Valentine's eight years. Valentine's Day. Yeah. How sweet. Eight years after he abducted Stephen, he took a guy by the name of Randall Sean Poorman, one of Stephen's older friends, on a kidnapping journey. When they were in Ukiah, the two managed to successfully abduct a five-year-old boy named Timmy White. Now, shortly after Parnell returned to the house he and Stephen were living in, Stephen noticed how scared and confused the little boy was. That's when he began devising a plan of his own. He knew he had to get Timmy back home to his parents as soon as possible. So Stephen's opportunity to carry out his mission arrived approximately two weeks later. Parnell was actually working as a security guard on the graveyard shift. So on March 1st, 1980, not long after uh, Parnell left work, Stephen grabbed Timmy and they left. Much. They just got the hell out of Dodge, right? So Stephen didn't have any way, means of travel other than walking. So he did what most runaways did during that time. He stuck out his thumb to hitchhike a ride to Ukiah, where Timmy had told him he was from. They managed to get a ride some, almost immediately. And when they arrived in Timmy's hometown, the little boy, remember, he's only five, right? tried to lead Stephen back to his house. However, since he was only five, he this tax was fruitless. He couldn't remember where he lived. I barely remember where I live, and I'm 49. You know, I know. It's lucky your truck has a mind of its own. Well, you know, I, I don't believe in stranger danger, so I get into random cars very often. I know you do. Uh, go see so puppies? Sure, that's stranger. when Stephen said their best chance for success was to go to the police and ask for help. Now, when it comes to child abduction cases, the odds of the perpetrator keeping their victim alive for any amount of time is slim to none. Statistics actually say that if the child isn't located within 48 hours of kidnapping, the chances of them being alive diminishes drastically. I think it drops to like, you know, maybe a 10% chance that they're alive or something like that. You know, I know it's like drastic. Right. I read a report about that. It's like, I think it's even lower than 10%. There's not much of a chance. I was going to say, so in March of 1980, (laughs) it had been approximately seven and a half years since Stephen went missing. By then, his family had pretty much accepted that they were what they thought was inevitable. They would never see Stephen alive again. Right. After 48 hours, you start looking for a body. Yeah, pretty much. It's pretty much a, a recovery mission as opposed to a search and rescue. So, um, he was... The Stainer family received the miracle that they didn't think would ever happen on March 2nd when they received a call from the police saying, we have your son. The entire nation was glued to the TV screens as news crews were on site when Stephen was reunited with his family. Then nine years later, and this is why his name would sound familiar, on May 22nd, 21st and 22nd, 1989, they aired a two-part miniseries called I Know My First Name is Stephen. 
Remember that one back in the 80s? I think I do, yeah. Yeah, because his dad had gotten mad at him for starting to write his name on the garage. And so um, he had yelled at him, and not long after that, Stephen was abducted. And so his da- his brother tried to paint over it one time. Carrie tried to paint over it so that they wouldn't have that reminder, and his dad yelled at him, saying, don't do that. That's all I have left. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, it was a huge thing. I remember we were forced to watch it. You know, because that's when Stranger Danger came in. So I think you're my Stranger Danger and that you're going to, like, murder me. I'm just biding my time. <laughs> Sitting back and waiting for the opportunity. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you're horrible. So, fortunately, I've never experienced anything remotely similar to what Stephen and his family endured during those eight years. Therefore, I can only imagine the impact it had on Carrie. Because remember, he's the oldest brother. They, it's ingrained in them that you protect your, your siblings, right? Right, right, My right. My sister thought she was how to protect us until she became, you know, let's not even say it. Um, and what, we, we started and fighting more and more. I always protected my brother until we started fighting. So, you know, you got that. But then at the same time, I can say whatever I want about my siblings. Don't you say it. You know what I mean? Because I'll rip your head off. That's because your sister's hot. And now I'm going to kill you. Okay. So I'm not trying to imply that this event justified his actions later in life. I'm just saying that I'm sure it had an impact on his psyche and his social development. In fact, it may have been an attributing factor in his choice to become a killer, which is why we are featuring him today. Okay? Okay. Now, let's fast forward 19 years. Um, to begin, Carrie's story, I'm going to fast forward. Is that a forward. fast forward sound? Yeah, it was a... That's not... Oh, I'm buying more sound effects. That's, <laughs> that's horrible. Oh, my God. I can't sound like a the, Walkman tape player. You shouldn't have done it. Like, I could have a five-year-old in here that would make a better sound effect than that. Don't do sound effects. You're fired from doing sound effects. <laughs> Damn, any cr- I'm traumatized from that. Now, I, I, boys and girls, I'll be right back. I got to kill the neighbors. That, that, that's the contributing factor right there. You Your sound effects. my coffee. <laughs> so, um, let's see. 19 years from when the Stainer family was reunited with Stephen. Well, let's forward and travel approximately 60 miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Is it 69 miles? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, I don't even think about what it, this when I'm writing it because I would have said a little over 68. Were, no. were, were they going deep in the 69 miles? Was no. that it right there? Northeast of Merced to the Yosemite National Park. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of deep crevices in Yosemite. I hate you. Yeah, it's really moist. So, Shut up. For those who aren't familiar with the area, it's actually considered one of the most beautiful scenic attractions in America. It spans over 1,100 square miles. Its alpine wilderness is filled with redwood forests and numerous hiking paths for tourists to enjoy. It's a very beautiful, beautiful area. Plus, a lot of rock climbing on Half Dome and El Capitan, which I've climbed both of them. I was going to say, I've never done rock climbing, so I wouldn't know that one. Uh, El Capitan's a day and a half climb. Uh, half oh, dome, really? You, yeah, you've got to sleep out on a ledge. And then uh, Half Dome is... I hope you don't roll off. Oh, no, you've got a cot in it. I'm just kidding. You know, carabiners. You said sleeping fine. on an edge, so... Ledge with an L. Oh. La, 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 No, um, and then Half Dome is, you can do that in a day. You are not Richie Valens, so... Of course not. I am way better and more Mexican. <laughs> okay. I'm going to get a sombrero to prove it. <laughs> so three women... <laughs> I was wearing a sombrero... 
And no, that's a different shirt of yours. So the three women suddenly vanished. Oh, wait. However, 1999, behind the mosaic of nature's beauty, looked a predator waiting to strike at his first victim. His chosen target was a 43-year-old female tourist, her teenage daughter, and her daughter's friend. The three women suddenly vanished one day, and it was over a month before their remains were discovered. However, once they were located by FBI, the running theory jumped to the possibility a serial killer was responsible. When the public heard this, it shook the peaceful area to its core. Now, the saga began on February 12, 1999, when Carol Sund, her daughter Julie, 15, and her 16-year-old and 16-year-old Sylvania Peloso, which is her daughter's friend, left the son home in Eureka, California, and started on a vacation to where the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains Hold, met hold on. Is it Eureka or Wairika? Eureka. Okay, so because people get confused, and so yeah, do I. Yeah, they do. I do, too, sometimes. Because no, Eureka's on the coast, and Wairika is mm. north of weed. Exactamundo. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know where Wairika is. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Your kid screaming from Wyoming all the way to Roseburn. Little brat. But, crotch um, goblins. I'm telling you. That's why I recommend for everybody, shot collars and, cat- and, and cattle prods for your little crotch goblins. I'm telling you. I don't you. shut that crap down in a hurry. So after they flew, they flew from Eureka to San Francisco. And boy, were their arms tired. But I'm bump. No, dude. They flew. I know. You know I like, got it. Like this. See? I got it, Rodney. <laughs> I got it, Rodney. <laughs> Danger field. <laughs> <laughs> so after flying from uh, Eureka to San Francisco, Mrs. Sun rented a uh, red 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix. They paused in Stockton, where Julie took part in a cheerleading contest at the University of the Pacific. They then headed out to Cedar <coughs> Lodge in El Portal, which is located on the Yosemite's western slope. There, they got a room for three and where they had already made reservations and they arrived early on February 14th. Okay. So Mrs. Sun and her husband, Jens, 43, both were prominent realtors in the Stockton area, had been entertaining the Pelosa girl for several weeks. She was a foreign exchange student from Argentina and she was also a friend of Julie's and that she, she had decided that she was going to spend three months with the family that had already shown her the Bay Area and Disneyland and some other areas in California, right? Mm. So on February 15th, they took a hike to take in the wonders of the park. And according to FBI, witnesses reported seeing them inspecting the giant sequoia trees. I know I'm going to mess this up. Okay. I think it's Tulame Grove. Am I right? I'm trying to remember. It's been years since it's T-U-O-L-U-M-M-E. I think it's Tulame. I think that sounds right. Right. I always mess it up. I'm just so. thinking of them taking a hike. There's a the big sequoia. There's some deer. There's a bunny rabbit. Oh, there's a serial killer over there. <laughs> well, you know what's really Check out weird these flowers. Is before my son lost all that weight, I used to call him my sequoia because <laughs> he was so thick. Well, I keep on saying, man, he's a giant freaking Asian. He is, he is. They normally don't grow him nine feet tall, but there's your son. Well, and at the the church and school across the street from where I used to live, they had actually, uh, the people who founded the church um, brought up sequoia seeds 
from California, and they planted sequoias in that front there. So those big trees you see are sequoia trees. Well, I'll tell you, your son, uh, you know, we call him Bullfrog. Bullfrog's saving grace is that he is a big, giant Asian because that scared the hell out of the Catholics across the street. So, like, we can't child abduct him or yeah. molest him. He's like six foot seven. Yeah. And he's probably a ninja. Giant. So we can't take well, that he, chance. He did, he did have a little tiger black belt in Taekwondo. There you go. Then yeah. he's like, then we, we don't want to like Taekwondo take him on because <laughs> well, he's going like, to tell people all the time. he ninjas. was an international gold medalist before he was five, so he could whoop your ass <laughs> if he wanted to. <laughs> but he's pretty mild mannered. Okay. He is very. You may continue. So that evening, according to reports, the, girl, the mom and the girls rented a couple videos from the lodge's service desk to watch in their room. However, they were never seen alive after that. Must have been bad videos. Holy cow. I know, right? Did they watch The Ring? <laughs> That's right. Just going to see. I'm just wondering. Like, did, <laughs> did they watch it and all of a sudden the, the hotel days. room? Yeah, the hotel room rang it. You have seven days. Click. And they're like, what's that about? And then boom. They're like, just kidding. We meant seven minutes. <laughs> days, minutes. It all runs together for us. And, and we're, we're, we're behind schedule. So we had to move you up. Right. So according to the staff at that inn, on February 16th, when they cleaned the room, there was no evidence of foul play. Okay? Checkout had been done in advance, and the keys were left on the room desk, which is customary. Because, I mean, you and I have stayed at motel rooms where we just leave the key card or whatever on the table, and we leave. But I do every single time, actually, because I stay in a lot of hotels. A <laughs> lot. Yeah, we know, I, hooker. I No, not just for hookers. Or not hookers. Not just for no, hookers. you're the hooker. Hey, look. Look at here, ho. <laughs> I hate you so much. And besides, I'm not gay. I keep telling you that. But 20 oh, is I a 20. I didn't say you were a gay. I didn't say you were a male, you know, a girly boy. I said you were a hooker. Hold on. I dropped the soap again. Whatever, gigolo. <laughs> Actually, that, that line, I dropped the soap again. That's my brother, Phil, when he was in prison. Oh, you mean tight end wide receiver? Yep. He went in like playing football. <laughs> he went in the tight end and came out a wide receiver. <laughs> It's pretty bad when the other inmates look at you and go, no, dude, it's cool. We gave yeah. you liquid soap for no, a reason. No, dude, pick it up. Get out of our face. It's, it's liquid away. soap. We're all you, good. You like, have your own shower time. Don't forget. <laughs> all the other inmates walked into the showers. You know what? We're good. We're just going to wait till next shower time. Mm-hmm. We're done now. Why? Because Phil's in there. That's why. <laughs> so um, now Jen's son, you know, the father. He was scheduled to meet the girls at the San Francisco airport that night on his way to Arizona. He was going to, you know, they were flying in and he was flying out to where the others and they were flying in. And then they were all going to, excuse me, they were all going to fly out to Arizona while he attended this meeting. The girls were going to tour the Grand Canyon. Okay. According to report, a Time Magazine report. Jens did not find his wife at the airport and assumed she had actually flown ahead. You know, that her flight came in early and they had left already. Flown on a plane, not flew ahead. Okay, gotcha. You're weird. No, it's weird to try to fly someone's head. How do you know? I'm just assuming it doesn't have (laughs) wings or anything. Well, it could because, you know, they've got those maxi pads or whatever that has wings. A stay free maxi wing always thingamajiggers. Right. Okay, So when he arrived in Phoenix, he noticed that she wasn't there yet. So he thought, hey, maybe she got delayed instead. So he went out, played a round of golf, and then when she still hadn't contacted him by the next day, he called the authorities, which I understand that process, you know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm digging that. Because it's not like they were flying together. It was, you know, they were trying to. 
So evidently, it seemed that the ladies had never returned the rented Pontiac, nor notified an anxious rental agency that they were extending their agreement, right? So local police in the Yosemite security began to search the area where the missing three girls were last seen. Initial suspicion was that they may have wandered off the main hiking path and gotten lost in, you know, the woodland, which you and I, okay, you have been in the woods before. I am not there. <laughs> um, hold on. I'm reading thinking that you say you have never been in the woods and the polygraph says that's a lie. <laughs> you're from the woods because you're a goddamn Sasquatch. Yeah. Well, anyways, but you know how easy it is to get turned around. No, it's true. It's happened. That's why usually I carry, well, before I GPSs and things like that, when I, when I was right. hunting all the time, I carried a, a compass with me. All yeah. but one time, because I did get lost in the wood, woods once. <laughs> and it was, no, like, true story, because I got turned around. I was out hunting. Oh, yeah. You get turned around easily out there, just like in a cornfield. Yeah. Like, and, you could walk straight into a cornfield, down a road, turn around, walk down the same road, get lost. Yeah. And my only saving <laughs> grace was uh, I, I had a cell phone then. It was one of the earlier cell phones, and I managed to call two people. Uh, my ex-wife Maritza, because we were married at the time, and my dad, and my dad had me look for surveyor markers. Okay. And I found one, and then, you know, they kind of got search and rescue out there, and they had to rescue my fat ass. I believe it. it and was, then they find you and put you under one of them tinfoil blankets, and you were like shivering, thinking, I'm so glad to be home. Hell no. I was like, does anybody have a cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> because mine are soaking wet, and I wanted to smoke. And they said, No. So I had to wait until I got uh, into town before I can get a pack of smokes. Right? And then make it home. So when they didn't find the girls or any sign of the girls out there, that assumption like dwindled, like something bad happened, right? So for four weeks, the police, family, and volunteers just combed the area. They like sent out search parties and they did a systematic grid search. You know how they do. Right, right, right. Right. And they actually even um, flew helicopters over the area and people went on foot and skis to find these people. And they were looking for a They were also looking for the missing red, you know, 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix and the women who rented it. But then when days passed, strangely, her wallet showed up in Modesto, California on the street. That's a bit far away. Uh, yeah, not only that is the money and all the contents were there. Nothing had been taken. So the FBI were like, something bigger is going on here than what we realized. It's not oh, that they shit. had wandered off and gotten lost. There's something bigger happening. Yeah, because like, uh, th I think that is where this dude, his initial screw up is. Because if you would have kept all that stuff with your victims and then they found the remains months or years oh, later. Oh, yeah. They would have said, hey, man, you know, that's tragic, but they obviously, you know, there was a bear attack or maybe they, you know, fell and, you know, right. they, they can come up with theories. But now. Yeah. When her wallet shows up in <laughs> Modesto, which is several hundred miles like, away. Isn't that south? Way south? No, it's north. Is it north? Yeah. Okay. Modesto's way north. OK. Of, then of I was thinking somewhere else. Thank Pretty sure. OK. Yeah, it's way north. Yeah. OK. So um, at that point. According to FBI agent Nick Rossi, he released a statement on February 26th that said, at this point, we have not yet uncovered evidence to allow us to determine conclusively whether it was a tragic accident or a criminal act. Well, because, you know, it could have been that they it was a tragic accident and then a bear found her wallet. <laughs> right. And, decided and, they, and then went to Modesto. 
And then they said, no, we don't serve bears here. He's like, God dang it. Was he a polar bear? Because he was a polar bear. <laughs> oh, my God. We're horrible. Yeah. They kicked him out of the bar. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ah, you know what? You guys are specist. I'm out of here. And then she he threw, her, he threw her wallet on the ground. Just screw this place. I'm yeah. done. I'm going back to the woods. Yeah. So two weeks later. The FBI's predictions darkened even more because they had conducted a massive search and rescue team worked around the clock for 30 mile radius and they failed to turn up anything. Holy smokes. So James Maddock was then placed in charge of the investigation. He told the press, we feel almost certain that the women were victims of a violent crime. Okay. Because of the discovery of her wallet in suburban Modesto, police and FBI actually canvassed that area as well. The logical routes in and out of that spot, interviewing homeowners and business owners and others who may have seen them. Then the Bureau relocated its headquarters from Yosemite to Modesto thinking, hey, that's where everything was, right? This is the bear. There was a bear sighting. It, it was. It was. So, um... You're so stupid. I hate you. (laughs) So on February 28th, 12 days after the women disappeared, hinted that it was no longer treating it as a missing persons case, but as a murder. So more than a thousand leads came in. Um, Even though more than a thousand leads came in, they still didn't find anything. None of them panned out. However, Bureau still intensified its search, recruiting the use of more high-tech equipment and air support. Now, I guess I'll get into it later, but I have a theory about that. It's because these guys were prominent realtors or whatever. Yeah. And so it's like... And and it's true. And it's weird that you said that because I was just talking to Maritza about this yesterday um, when, when people disappear. If it was a lower middle class Mexican kid, Right, exactly. Or, I mean, let's, let's take the kid out of it. It's a it's a lower, lower middle class, two Mexican women. Okay, right. we're going to call them Lucida and Juanita, <laughs> like my housekeepers. And uh, this is stupid. That's why I don't deport them all. You need housekeepers and orange cells. You don't even anyway, have any anymore. No, I don't have a housekeeper anymore. It's very sad. Anyhoosies, um, if they would have disappeared, it may have made news. Maybe. Maybe. At least page 12 of the Oregonian. But... With prominent people that yeah. are mainly white, yeah. Um, and and go, uh, for for our listeners, I'm not like promoting like BLM and racism or anything like that. But no, when when prominent white people disappear, all of a sudden it's a it's a news frenzy. People are like, "Oh my god, we have to well, catch the person." Even if they're prominent of other ethnicities, if yeah. they're prominent in society, they're going to be you know it's a big deal. But I find that more more so with when mm-hmm. it's white people. Exactly. Well, we ran into that. Remember when um, we talked about it? Because um, when the time of the Golden State Killer was committing his crimes, it's the same time Richard Ramirez was committing his crimes in a more right. affluent area in California. And so the heat was on to find whoever was killing those people. But nobody cared about who, you know, uh, what's his name? D'Angelo was killing. Right. Correct. You know, and also when the Green River Killer and they actually have a term for like the prostitutes and homeless people and every and you know lower ethnicities is they call them less than dead. Well, and then that's what I brought up before because you know yeah. I'm a big advocate of you know letting everybody know that hookers are people. Yes, 
You know, well, because our people too. Prostitutes are people too. That's our, you know, we're going to coin yeah, that. Phrase. And there, there, there's actually a reason for that, folks, is because every time that a hooker gets killed, mm-hmm. it's like the cops go, "Huh, it's just a dead hooker. We don't care." Mm-hmm. Unless, unless Rochester, New York, Rochester PD in New York, <laughs> man, you kill a hooker in Rochester, and I tell yeah. you what, those boys are going to be on you like stink on poop. Right. Exactly. And I mean, and we always bring it back to the Spahal. Spahalski brothers yes is that the only time Rochester police weren't on it was when Spahalski was doing his killings but that's because he altered the crime scene right exactly not because you know they didn't want to find the person who killed him they he had altered the crime scene so much that they thought it was natural causes right right it just sends me that you know just because somebody's a hooker Mm -hmm. if they get treated as less of a person or you know just because they're lower middle class or lower class exactly because of what they make not everybody makes what we all make Exactly. You know, everybody's got a different financial status. Everybody's got different factors in their life. Right. That contribute to their to, to their place in society. And their choices. And, and yeah. their choices. Yeah. You know, but still, everybody deserves justice. Exactly. Now that I'm off of my soapbox, you may carry on. May I continue? Carry on my wayward son. May you cry no more. I can't get that high. I know. So as as February turned into March, the public still had hope. They had a march and a vigil uh, were conducted in Modesto. And unofficially, Jens offered up a 250000 reward out of his own pocket for information that would lead to the return of the missing women. Damn, that was a chunk of change back in the 90s. Right. Well, and after a couple of weeks, he upped that to 300000 But still, nobody came forward. So her parents, Frances and Carol Carrington, appeared on television's Good Morning America to, like, they whoever had their daughter and their her children to bring them back home or let them go, whatever. Because everybody was still hoping they were alive. Yeah, understandable. Okay. I wouldn't hope that they, I wouldn't even think that they're alive considering that her wallet was found all the way up in goddamn Modesto. See, and that's what I'm thinking, too. You know, unless they were kidnapped by a cult and then, I mean, you know. There, there's, there's always hope. Right, because you know, their 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 boy Stephen, uh, or the our killer's brother Stephen lived, and he it was like eight years later. But yeah, yeah, almost eight years later, exactly. You know, but still, if you're finding, if you're finding your wife's belongings yeah. several hundred miles away from where yeah. she was last seen, exactly, um, and you still haven't found the car anywhere, possibility and probability. It's yeah. a possibility she's alive, but that probability. Yeah, not so much. Minute. Yeah. So the people who held out the most hope were the other children because they had other kids, right? So they believed that their mother and sister would come home at some point. Daddy, However, by home? middle March, their, antici- their an- anticipations dropped. Her mother and sister and family friend had been missing for a month by the time Gina read her poem in front of a thousand or so people who had gathered in Modesto. Now, According to this, this is the poem. Deep in my heart, I know something my mind does not want to learn. I try to stay strong because I know that's what you'd want your baby to be. But mommy, I don't know what you, I don't want you to leave me. Isn't that sad? She was only 13. That is so sad. It oh my God, here we cry. go. No, I know my biggest fan hates that voice. <laughs> it reminds me of when a lady ate my puppy dog and his name was Dippy. She's going to beat your ass. <laughs> it makes me sad. 
<laughs> then came the hard reality. The son's family's worst fears were confirmed because a hiker wandered onto the site of a burned-out red 1999 Pontiac hidden off Highway 108 in this Stanislaus Forest region late on March 18th. I'm sorry, where was that? High- 108? Yeah, Highway 108 in the Stanislaus Forest mm-hmm. region. Oh, okay. Yeah. The California Highway Patrol verified the card's license plate as the one that she had, Mrs. Sun had rented, and immediately notified the FBI. Agents arrived at the scene early on the 19th, opened the trunk, and investigators found two charred bodies. Ooh, brutal. The corpses were unrecognizable, but within days they were, invi- they were identified as Carol Sund and Sylvania Peloso. Authorities now suspected that young Julie may have met a similar fate somewhere else. So they canvassed the area. They spread out along Highway 108, questioning locals, stopping cars for any information on anybody who might have saw how and when the car got there. But most importantly, they wanted to find Julie. And it was, but it was near Lake Pedro in the Tulame County, miles away, that the badly decomposed body of Julie's son was at last found on March 25th, which was almost a week later. And her throat had been cut. Ah, dude. Yeah. So throughout the next several weeks, a task force, which comprised of FBI, local law enforcement from four surrounding counties, got together and they were dedicated to finding out who did this. So they rounded up some suspects. They arrested several known sex offenders, drug users, and ex-convicts with a record of violence within a 75 square mile from Modesto. And Sonoma. Okay. Jeez. God, we run into this a lot too. They, they, they arrest everybody in sight. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes. Gonna, Which uh, diminishes their case in the long run. Right. So let me take a wild guess here is that they're going to send probably half of them to trial. Some are going to get convicted and then it's going to get overturned. They're going to get released. Okay, well, no, not quite, but oh, yeah. Okay, well, let's just, so, history um, tells us that. Yeah, so not only, so they figured that the killer of the three women had to have been somebody who was familiar with that area, right? For whoever was guilty had successfully maneuvered an otherwise obvious shiny red Pontiac unseen through natural terrain, dense woods, and county roads. More so, the FBI thought, only a native would have been aware of the out-of-the-way site where the car and its contents were eventually abandoned, which I understand that, right? <laughs> so, uh, on the March 29th edition of Newsweek, it said, the, quote, the FBI believes that the killer knows the area of abandoned gold mines well enough to hide the car off a spur road where locals dump old refrigerators, cars, and washing machines. Oh, my gosh, like Dorothea Puentes. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and well enough to know that the smell of a burning car would likely not attract attention because the air often reeks from people burning their garbage. Unsettled locals are starting to whisper about possible murderers in their midst. End quote. So by mid-April, those who had been apprehended on submission were ordered to testify in front of a grand jury in Fresno. A few weeks later, James Maddock, who's the FBI agent in charge, confirmed that what the B, the local newspaper, and other news media outlets already were reporting that the key players in the sightseer slings had been arrested and were in jail on unrelated charges. That's what they're assuming. Okay? <laughs> yep. Although not named in print at that time, the names that have since been published 
are these are the suspects they had. Michael McLarwick, 42 of Modesto. He was part he was part of a vagabond group of methamphetamine drug users and friends centered in the Modesto area. I don't do any meth. So <laughs> do you happen the to speed have any killers? meth? I mean, because I'd be willing to um try it, you know, for the first time. Shut Not up, everything idiot. itches on me. I just can't keep itch can't quit can't quit itching. So anyways, Marwick grew up in Tulame County, near where the bodies were of Carol and Sylvania were found. He was jailed March 16th after he allegedly shot a police officer, an event that was ensued by a 14-hour standoff. Dude, he, he did a, shoot the sheriff. Yeah. But he did not shoot the, no <laughs> the deputy. deputy. So he was a long... He, he had a long criminal record and was questioned by the FBI extensively the whole time denying any role in the slangs. Okay? Then they had Eugene Rufus Dykes. Shut I up. love that name. Age 32. That is an Rufus awesome... Rufus is his nickname, but yeah. Yeah, and his last name was Dykes? Yeah, D-Y-K-E-S. <laughs> now, I've known a lot of people last that last name, but yeah. So you tell me you know a lot of Dykes? I have. Actually, I was friends with a woman by the name of Tammy Dykes for a long time. <laughs> I hate you right now. Was she a, was she kind of manly? No, she was. Was not. she a lumberjack? No. Or lumberjill? No, she was actually married to a guy by the name of James Earl. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> he made really good jambalaya, though. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so he was also from Modesto, and he was Mike Michael's half brother. He was arrested in March, and he was serving a year at the Duell Institute for an unrelated parole violation. He also had a long criminal record including sex and weapons convictions in an interview from the institute he denied any involvement in the murders then there's 39 year old billy joe strange these names get better and better i know this is awesome next on the hillbillies of california <laughs> now he was actually an el portal parolee who had had been working at cedar lodge lounge and restaurant where the women were last seen it he, wasn't me. I was all a working and everything. And uh, oh, I think I just now I spit my PBR. Some bitch. I don't know how. What were we talking about again? <laughs> I ain't got no teethus, but I can talk to you <laughs> from Billy Joe. <laughs> and I'm not strange. <laughs> I'm perfectly normal like everyone else. Hold on one second. I have to. I have to try to get my leg up here to itch my ear. Yeah. So according to them, he had already been arrested. When he allegedly reported to his parole officer with liquor on his breath. Okay, that's obviously um, a parole violation. Booze or like uh, my kind of liquor? Booze, dear. Oh, booze. Not, not like a leg over each here. Yeah. So, gotcha. no. So, the FBI actually pushed for him to be arrested, but he denied any involvement in the murders. And then when they found, when his friends and family found out he was a suspect, they came forward and said, no, he was with us. That's right. He was okay. like, excuse me. Excuse me. Huh. Let, let, let me go. Let me go. I was a drunk and a drinking at the time. I don't know. I ain't a murdering nobody. I don't know. What you're, no, stay. Get away from me, Jolene Marie Jethro Butthole Jr. God dang it. I'm going to stand up for myself. So, and then you have 55-year-old Daryl Gray Stevens. He was actually Strange's roommate, and he had been convicted in 1978 for rape and robbery, and he was in jail on March 14th for failing to register as a sex offender. But he also told the newspapers, I had nothing to do with this. He was a drunken too. So then we have, while those four men 
you know, were considered the main suspects. Others have since been questioned by the FBI. They, these people who were never regarded as possible killers were, were just dragged into the process because the FBI believed they were either abettors or witnesses, like accomplices or witnesses. Okay? So they're just dragging all these people through the mud. Which, remember, we ran into that with that guy, um, Danny Rollins. Him? What's his name? The, uh, uh, the guy from... Uh, I can't think of the place I'm thinking of right now. But it was down in Florida. Well, there, there, there was him in the... The Gainesville the, Ripper. Yeah, but there was also the one out of Austin, Texas that was an unsolved. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They literally arrested everyone in town well and look at what they did back um with bible john in in overseas oh, yeah. where they had to give people and with the uh zebra killers in san francisco oh that was the, about the worst man where they're sitting there and they're arresting every african-american in sight yeah it's like hey yeah. man you're 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 black without a license sir. yeah you you're, you're driving while black yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the first one was 36 year old rachel lou campbell she was from Modesto. She had been charged in April for stealing checks and credit cards and converting them into cash and merchandise worth over $365,000. My question is, where was she in my life? <laughs> um, keeping you out of prison again right. there. Hey, you know what I got to say? Look at this. A negative <laughs> female inmate. I knew you were going to go there. So she pled innocent to that charge and was reportedly a key witness when... She was first arrested on mail fraud charges. She had in her possession Carolson's checking account and automated ATM numbers. Did she ever get arrested on female charges? She got arrested on male charges. I got Just you now. I'm you. like, it's still too early for me. <laughs> I know it's almost noon, but still early. Then they had Larry Dwayne Utley, 41. He was associated with Dykes and Larry. Hold on. Is everybody up there have a hillbilly name? I'm waiting for a Jethro. Much. Like, for real. I, no. It, no. Or Cletus. No. He was an associate of um, Dykes and Larwick, who first pick, was picked up in March on a parole sweep, and he was arrested in May on an unrelated crime. I mean, everybody's got their thing. I like right? midgets. He likes Dykes. Then there was Teresa K. Gray. The FBI task force investigating Yosemite issued a federal warrant for her, which when she, after she failed to appear in Stanislaus County Drug Court. Then there's Kenneth Soldier Stewart, a former cellmate of Dykes, who was charged with an attempted murder. He was questioned. Then there's Angelina Dale, who testified before the federal grand jury. She was subpoenaed because she was a friend of Darks and Larwick. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of people that they're dragging into this who have no association with the crime whatsoever. They're grasping at straws. That's the Which same thing they did in Austin, Texas. The same thing they did in Gainesville. That they actually... I mean, when they do that, they diminish their case against the real person. Uh, they do, and even if you catch the real person with mm-hmm. blood on their hands, the, the in the in the court of public opinion, they're going to be looking at you like, "I'm pretty sure that's the wrong guy." Well, no, we caught him. He's got like the axe that he killed everybody with, and blood all over him, and it all matches. Yeah, you probably still have the wrong guy. Why? Right? Because you just pull freaking thirty people in that had nothing to do with the crap that you're investigating, you jackasses. Right. Well, check this out. By the end of June of that year, the FBI, after going through all the testimonies and the evidence linked to those people they had in custody, they issued a statement that said, while no one had yet been charged, it felt that those responsible for the killing of the three women at Yosemite were already behind bars. Oh, my God. So others, too, had also been questioned. One of those people was Carrie Stainer. 
He was a clean cut, had no record of violence, and was working at the Cedar Lodge as his handyman. Then three weeks after the FBI released that statement, the case was reopened because a fourth victim was brutally slain just a few miles from Cedar Lodge. Hmm. Now, I'm going to end there. All right. Because it gets into that second, that second, actually, it's actually the fourth murder, but, you know, second incident. Correct. And I don't want to be in the middle of that when we have to cut off. That's probably a good idea. So yeah. we'll make this one a, an easy peasy lemon squeezy. Okay. Fine. I thought that was funny. But all right. No, no. Sit over there not laughing. No, I hear you chirping, Big Bird. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. <laughs> Jiminy Christmas. All right, boys and girls. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will see you guys later on. Hasta la vista. Killer. Bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs>